0: Verse 16, Romans chapter 1 and verse 16. Having taken a look at the context for Paul's quotation of Habakkuk 2.4, which is used in one seventeen last week, let's now look at Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Actually, tonight we'll look at verse 16, and next week we'll look at verse 17. These were the verses that the Holy Spirit used to bring Martin Luther to salvation, and subsequently to initiate the Protestant Reformation technically, verses 16 and 17 are part of the introduction to the letter. But they form a transition into the body of the letter by stating Paul's theme, which is the righteousness of God is revealed to mankind. But before we do that, I want to keep the message, of this, the message statement of this book before you. Because as we delve into details, I want you to never forget the big picture. Since God has lovingly provided salvation for helpless sinners through his son, we should accept that sacrifice by faith and express our gratitude to God by dedicating our lives to him. And if we put that statement into the form of an application for the entire book, now I'm not talking about for these two verses, but again for the entire book, it might sound like this. In view of the greatness of the salvation that God has provided, as Romans reveals, we, as Paul have a duty or an obligation to communicate this good news to the world. We do this both by lip and by life, by explanation and by example. Our living example will reflect death to self as well as life to God. Now, as far as our text tonight goes, let's go back to verse 8, and I'll read through that point so we can get context. Paul says in verse 8 of chapter 1 of Romans, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers making requests, if perhaps now at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you in order that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established or strengthened or perhaps encouraged. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. And I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented thus far in order that I may obtain some spiritual fruit among you also even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Thus, for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And now tonight's passage, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. In verse 16, first, uh, le- first one quick textual note. Uh, some of your Bibles will say, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, or I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those, The words of Jesus Christ or of Christ are not in the better manuscripts, so that's why the translation that I read, you didn't have that in there. One quick note about that. But here, in verse 16, Paul reveals the third of his basic attitudes toward the gospel. First he says, not only did he feel obligated in verse 14, he felt eager to come and preach it in verse 15, but now we find that he also felt unashamed to do so. Uh, The word unashamed is one of the key words in this passage. It's ep iskunomai, and it means to experience or feel shame or disgrace because of some particular event or activity. Or, another definition, the the disgrace one brings on oneself by one's own action. And I kind of like that because it shows that if I'm going to be ashamed, ordinarily, I'm going to have to be the responsible party. You see, I mean, if somebody else does something, I might feel ashamed as a United States citizen or as a Houstonian or as a Texan or as a member of Pine Valley Bible Church. But that's kind of a corporate shame. Ordinarily, shame is something I feel because of something I did and something that I'm responsible for. So the disgrace one brings on oneself by one's own actions. But also, this this word, episkunami, means the consequence of being shown to have acted on a false assumption or misplaced confidence. And particularly, we see the psalms for that type of shame in an Old Testament context. Psalm 35:26, Psalm 40, verse 14 and 15 Psalm 69 16 etc Psalm 20 uh, 35 26 sounds this way and this is David speaking he said let them be ashamed and brought to mutual confusion who rejoice at my hurt let them be clothed with shame and dishonor who exalt themselves against me now that's called an imprecatory prayer there's some discussion about whether those kind of prayers are valid for today so you might want to be careful before you call down god's curses on on someone else but that's what paul is is speaking of there. Now keep in mind who Paul's original audience was. The neat thing about this is, his original audience is not so different from the audience that we have today. Paul is writing to believers who lived in the cultural (laughs) capital of the world. For those in Rome who had not accepted the gospel, Paul fully understood that his message would be foolishness to them. Many people shy away from talking about Jesus Christ for fear of being ridiculed by the cultural elite. But Paul was an intellectual himself, and he was not impressed with the cultural elite, nor was he ashamed of the message that he brought. Paul understood that to be ashamed of the message is to be ashamed of Jesus Christ. And that was so foreign to Paul that it doesn't even appear to have been a serious option for him. That's also so important. I want to repeat part of that. Paul understood that to be ashamed of the message is to be ashamed of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is so uh, closely associated with the message of the gospel that one can't be separated from the other. So if we say we're ashamed of the message of Jesus Christ, it's the same uh, same as saying that we are ashamed of Jesus Christ himself. Now, we, too, have a right to question ourselves on this issue of being ashamed. So Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. We love Jesus Christ. We appreciate our salvation. But are we ashamed of the message to the point of being embarrassed to tell others about him? Now, I'm not advocating what you might be visualizing right now. Uh, Some have considered the statement of Paul and have found themselves to be guilty to one degree or another and have in my opinion overreacted. They gather on a street corner with some tracks and or maybe in a mall and they approach people asking them if they know Jesus as their savior. Please don't misunderstand, please don't misunderstand, I'm not knocking that kind of evangelism per se but rather I'm speaking as to the motivation behind that particular type of evangelism on a very frequent basis. I sense that many of the folks that are doing that are doing and acting from the motivation of guilt and would really rather be anywhere but where they are at that particular moment, and they can't wait for the tracts to be distributed so that they can go home and get past this activity Well, there's something wrong with that. If a person did the same thing, if a person went to a mall and passed out tracks, but the motivation was love and not guilt, then that's a different story altogether. And that person would be sorry that the tracks were finally gone through and would go out to the car and get some more rather than saying, I've done my duty for today. I'm out of here. You see the difference? With guilt motivation, it's wrong and it's silly, and it comes across as silly. I'm sorry, but it really does. As a believer in Jesus Christ, sometimes I feel bad for the people in malls and on street corner that are doing that, because you know they don't want to be there. You know it's just ripping their guts out. It's so far outside their normal personality that they're probably going to develop psychological problems from it. You know, I feel bad for them. But it all speaks to motivation. Because if your motivation is love and that's part of what the Holy Spirit leads you to do, then it's going to be a piece of cake for you. Let me see if I can step out of the realm of theology for a second so we can be maybe more objective about this and, and speak, about, speak of this from a little different angle. What if I was to say, I'm not ashamed of vitamin C? How would we react? I mean, if, if, I was to say, if I was to tell you I've read Linus Pauling's work and the work that he won the Nobel Prize for on vitamin C and how it helps certain kinds of diseases, and I knew that and I was convinced of that in my soul, and I just agree with this for the sake of argument tonight. I'm not asking you to, to believe what I say about vitamin C. I'm using this for illustration. But let's say that that's what I was convicted of in my soul and there was some truth to it. Let's just assume that. And let's say that I decided that I, I, I was not going to be ashamed of the fact that vitamin C helps <coughs> minimize the effects of coals during flu season. Now, do you think under normal circumstances I would go out onto the street corner and get a blowhorn and, you know, yell this message at every car that went by. Vitamin C will help you. The vitamin C will help you. Take it and you won't get as many coals. Or would I go to the mall and would I print I, I out a track that says, listen, vitamin C will help you with your coals And everybody that goes by, hey, vitamin C will help you with your cold. Take some. Here, take some vitamin C. Well, probably not. Most of us would consider that to be silly. However, what if we were sitting next to someone on the bus and we noticed they were sniffling and you you noticed that their eyes were kind of watering? Perhaps you may say, hey, listen, I notice you look like you're having some cold symptoms here. Well, yeah, I am. Have you been trying to do anything for that? Uh, I've been taking some NyQuil, but it hasn't really seemed to help. You know, you might say, well, you know, I've read an article recently about vitamin C. Have you read Linus Pauling's work on that? It seems to be helpful. Just thought you might like to know. And then if the person says, yeah, tell me about that, you'd go on further with the conversation. If the other person says, listen, mind your own business, I don't believe in nutrition. Get out of my face. You'd say, hey, okay, no problem. Or if, you're, or if you're at home and you're around the dinner table and someone says, hey, listen, I heard uh, Aunt Martha's got some problems with her immune system. And you know, and please again, for the sake of argument, you know that vitamin C might help that. Do you think you might go to the hospital and visit with Martha and say, hey, listen, Martha, uh, I hope the things you're doing are working okay. But, but I read this article about vitamin C. Just thought I'd pass it on to you. Just, you know, just think you might want to consider this because there's some pretty strong evidence that it might help. You see, if I wasn't ashamed of vitamin C, then I might do that. The fact is, and the tragedy is, I was in a situation very similar to these two examples in that when my uncle was 25, he developed lymphatic cancer. He died at 25, too. He didn't make it even through the whole year. Well, I happened to know that the doctors had told him that there was absolutely no way he would survive, zero percent chance of surviving out the year. Now, he was 25, but they didn't tell him that. Why, I don't know. I think it was wrong to do that. I think he should have made his own. You know, you know, he was a biomedical engineer. He should have been told, but he never was. Well, I was told, and I thought, well, doggone it. He needs to know that, and I also know some alternative things that he could possibly do for his cancer if they weren't going to do anything for him. I'm just saying, you know, they weren't going to do a thing, so why not try something else? And so I, I went and asked him to go play golf and this, is what he could still walk. And I mustered up the courage to not be ashamed about some nutritional things that he might do to help himself. But I never mustered up the courage to tell him about Jesus Christ. Now, now where is the sense in that? I was perfectly willing to not be ashamed of the scientific information, so-called scientific information that I knew, but... I was too embarrassed to talk to him about Jesus Christ. Now, that happened about 25 years ago, and you can still, I, still, I'm still ashamed of that today. But you see, what, I, what I'm saying is that I don't want you to take this message tonight and be convicted by it, and then go out and act so far outside of your personality that it comes across as, as phony and fake. And it's something you feel under some sort of obligation to do and get the obligation out of the way. That's not what I'm talking about. But I am talking about being yourself and not being ashamed of Jesus Christ. He saved you. He, he sought you. He saved you. He keeps, his, keeps you by his grace on an everyday basis. What is there to be ashamed about with him? And I'm saying that if there's a family member that needs Jesus Christ, just like you might tell them, hey, listen, you need some vitamin C to help clear up those allergy symptoms, why wouldn't you sit down and say, hey, listen, I notice you're struggling. Have you ever considered Jesus Christ? And remember that while the Holy Spirit's not going to go with you when you talk to him about vitamin C, he's going to be there with you when you talk to him about Jesus Christ. Again, please, I want to say it for the third time. I'm not knocking the the activity itself of standing and passing out tracts. But only do that if you're motivated by love. Don't do it just because you're motivated by guilt. Because that's not what Paul's saying here. Uh, Paul's just saying when you get the opportunity take it and you've got to be sensitive for opportunities uh, I noticed um, one of the, one of, uh, there are some people that just do really well with this uh, one's not here so I'm going to tell you we should pray for him more. I'll Gene Brown one of them is Jerry Davis I mean the, these guys go out and somebody will be, they'll be in the course of normal conversations and they'll tell people about Jesus Christ I was with a friend at a at an eastern restaurant of some sort. I guess it was Indian food, and they had some Hindu things up there. And, and uh, these people decided to put these little statues in their restaurant. Now, they might have done it just for decoration, but to me, that's open season. And the guy that I was with said, hey, listen, I noticed you've got uh, a bunch of statues of deities up here. How do you feel about Jesus Christ? Now, see, I feel like that's, that's open season because they're the ones that brought it up by, the, by virtue of how they decorated their restaurant." But that's different from just walking up somebody cold call at the mall when they're standing in front of you and saying, Hey, listen, have you ever trusted Jesus Christ for eternal life? Now, that's, it's different because it's, most people are going to be repulsed by that. And that's not what Paul's talking about here. And that's not what I'm talking about either. But I'm saying you love him. He saved you. You owe him, although grace doesn't incur debt. So we don't really want to use that as, as motivation. It's not that you're paying off a debt. Is that you love him, and you know you got life-saving information. That's what I'm saying. That's what Paul's doing too, when he says, "I'm not ashamed of the gospel." Now, it's possible that one of Paul's young proteges, Timothy, had a problem with this particular issue. In Second Timothy, chapter one, verse eight, Paul says, "Therefore, do not be." He's speaking to Timothy. "Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord." or of me, his prisoner, but joined with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Because of that statement, some commentators believe that perhaps Timothy was shrinking back a little bit. He was, under, he was catching some flack and undergoing some fire, for not only being associated with Jesus Christ, but even for being associated with Paul. And so Paul's saying, don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed of Jesus, and don't be ashamed of me. In verse 12 of that same chapter, he says, For this reason I also suffered these things, and I love this verse, but I am not ashamed... For I know whom I've believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I've entrusted him until that day. I know in whom I've believed. That ought to be a verse that would be on all of our lips and our minds if we happen to be on a hospital bed, fading away, or if we're in in some sort of traumatic accident, or if we're in, in prison. I know whom I've trusted, and I know that he's able to guard what I've entrusted to him, meaning my life, until the very end. And finally, verse 16 of that chapter 2, he says, The Lord grant mercy to the house of verse, for he often refreshed me. And he wasn't ashamed of my chains. Talk about pulling a chain a little bit, I think Paul is pulling Timothy's chain a little bit at that point by saying, hey, listen, this other guy wasn't ashamed of my chains. Don't you be ashamed. And by the way, you're you have a lot higher position in the church than this other guy had. So, it's possible that Timothy had a little problem as well. I think, quite frankly, I think, quite frankly, that this will probably convict, it is a convicting statement, to almost everybody here tonight. If it's not, then you may be not objective about yourself. But all of us, maybe a few exceptions, but all of us could stand to improve our public testimony for Jesus Christ. And I'm not just talking about the words that come out of your mouth. I'm also talking about the way that we live our lives. People watch that. And before people are ever going to listen to the words that come out of your mouth, for most of us, they're going to look at what the, the actions that come out of our lives, and then they're going to see if, if we're worth listening to. So if you're a person that's always mad about stuff, always bitter about stuff, always complaining about things, always whining about things, always panicking when, when tough times come... And you notice someone else that's panicking or bitter or someone, and you say, hey, listen, i got good news for you. Jesus Christ is perhaps the answer to your problems, or is the answer to your problems. They'd have every, every right to say, well, gosh, I don't know if I buy that or not. So we, we minister with our lives first and then ordinarily with our mouth second. Now, for some people who have a special gift of evangelism, uh, they can, the Holy Spirit takes it right straight through the life part and gets it to the word part. But Paul says, I'm not ashamed. So that's the third reason. He's he's under obligation. He's eager. He said, but I'm not ashamed. Now, in the Greek language, the next phrase is marked off by two little Greek particles. Gar. And then dot, dot, dot. Gar. This is G-A-R. That's G-A-R. G-A-R. So he says, first, uh, the reason I'm eager to come is... Gar, probably should be translated here, because, so we can look at it this way, because I'm not ashamed, and then there's a reason that he's not ashamed, so there's another because in here, it, in English it would be a little bit of a, of a harsh translation to translate it uh, with the word because, so in, they've used the word for, but just so you understand, those are causal The reason I'm eager to come and preach is because I'm not ashamed of it. And the reason I'm not ashamed of it is because it, meaning the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, both to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So you see the two becauses there? I'm not ashamed. I'm I'm, I'm eager to preach it. I'm I'm under obligation. I'm eager to preach it because I'm not ashamed of it. But, there, but there's a reason that I'm not ashamed of it, and that's because it's powerful. This is good stuff. Now, the illustration I gave you a minute ago, 50 years from now, they may say, hey, listen, the whole thing about vitamin C, you totally wrong about that. I mean, 20 years from now. Who knows? Science changes, which is why, a little bit, just a very slight side note, which is why you've got to be very careful using scientific discoveries to say, hey, look, see, Christianity was correct. You see the danger in that? There's a very subtle danger in that. Because if we do it, and understanding that scientific dis- discoveries, things that are supposed to be science, science changes all the time, which is why we can't have confidence in that. What are you going to do if you've built your whole case on see, Science says this. And then 10, 15, 20 years later, science changed its mind, and it doesn't back up your view. And you've based your whole thing on science. Okay. So in my illustration, science may proof someday that vitamin C wasn't something that I should have that much confidence in. I know I should have been ashamed of it. I don't know. But the gospel's not that way. There will never be a time when the gospel is not powerful enough to affect what it was supposed to affect. So this is the way it works. Paul, Paul says, "I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, and you might say, "Why do you ask? Uh, why, why you? Ask? Uh, why are you eager to? Because I'm not ashamed of it. Why do you ask? Why am I not ashamed of it? Because it is the power of God for salvation. Now some of your Bibles might t- say, unto salvation, it actually means resulting in salvation. Because it is the power of God resulting in salvation. Now, the Greek word translated power here is dunamis. And you might recognize that root. It's where we get the English word dynamite from. So if you ever uh, if you are wondering and you ever forget what dunamis means, just remember dynamite is very powerful. It can have a very powerful explosion. And um, the context here, though, shows that Paul was thinking... Of the power, the intrinsic ability of the gospel to accomplish what God intends it to accomplish. There's never going to nobody is ever going to discover a better way to get to the Father than Jesus Christ. It's powerful. There's nothing beyond that. There's nothing even in the same category, especially works. A lot of times, people try to add that. They say, well, Jesus Christ is great. Don't you know people like that? So, you know, Jesus, that's fine. That's fine. And, I, and I'm willing to trust him, but, but really, I, I really think I need to be good. Now, if you hadn't heard that, you, you probably had not been out talking to very many people because that's the, the most widespread view in all the world today. That somehow I need to be good in this life so I can be okay in the next. Now, I may not be great in the next, but if I'm just I'm just trying to be good enough. Well, that's not that's not powerful at all. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is powerful. God has the power, power to deliver or save physically. We see that a lot of times in the Psalms with David. Oh, Lord, save me from my enemies. Now, he's not talking about his enemy being sin there. His enemy is usually um, Saul most of the time. But that's a physical deliverance. But salvation can also, and most of the time, or at least New Testament, it's half the time, means a... Um, a spiritual deliverance. Acts 16.31, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. It doesn't mean you will be healed of your cancer, like some people think. No, that's a spiritual salvation. So that's a, any kind of, time this word sozo, which is the Greek word for salvation, is used, it's, it's a deliverance from something, from one state of affairs to another, from a state of, of danger to a state of safety. That's the Old Testament example I gave. But in the New Testament example, so-so means I'm being saved from a position of spiritual death a spiritual life. And that's what's talk, being talked about here. Of course, I, I hate that we have to say that, but the fastest-growing segment of uh, the fastest-growing segment of Christianity is a little confused about that, and they think that the salvation includes both spiritual and physical deliverance, and that's just simply not the case. Easter, eternal salvation. Restores people to what they cannot experience because of sin. Now, the gospel does not announce that everyone is safe because of what Jesus Christ has done. That's a theology called universalism. You see, Paul says here, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone. Now, there's not a period after everyone, there's a relative clause beginning with who. It's the power of salvation to everyone who believes. And that kind of narrows the field down, doesn't it? But universalism teaches that because God, is, because God accomplished salvation through Jesus Christ on the cross and paid for the sins of mankind, then mankind is now saved. And that's not a biblical concept. Sometimes I wish it was, because I hate to see anybody go to hell, but it's not a biblical concept. And God's very character would have been compromised if that had been the case. So listen carefully. The gospel is only effective in those who believe it. The gospel is only effective. Christ's work on the cross is only effective for those who trust Jesus Christ and what he did for us. Now, there is one exception that I can find biblically to that, and that is those who can't believe, who are not able to ever believe, like the mentally retarded, for example, or perhaps, well, definitely, young children. Uh, Those people never reach what uh, theologians sometimes call the age of accountability. And so uh, God, in his grace, can, uh, can arbitrarily apply the finished work of Christ to their cases and declare them righteous without them ever having to actually believe because they can't. But for the rest of us, that's not a way out. We, we could either accept him or reject, or reject him. I assume everyone here tonight has uh, accepted him. Some people, time, some people ask me, well, what do you think the age of accountability is? You know what? There's, there's only one hint in the Bible. And actually, I don't want you to count on this uh, because it's just a hint. But it's a little higher than what you might think. I think if we took a poll and took a secret ballot, some people might say 7 years old, 8 years old, 10 years old, 12 years old, 15 years old, 16. Biblically, the only place where we see any kind of age of accountability is in the Exodus generation that rejected God from go- for going into the land, or toward going into the land, and it was everyone that was 20 and under was the, were the ones that were considered not accountable for that decision. Now, again, I, I'm not optimistic that that is a strong number that can be applied across the board. Again, I wish that was the case, too. But um, you must be old enough to understand the issues before you're going to be held accountable for them. Or, like many of you have met my sister Cindy, uh, Cindy is 43 years old, 44 years old, but, but has such brain damage, and it's been from birth, that she was never able to have a, a rational thought like that. You know, she can recognize you and give you a big hug you know, whenever she's here. And she can certainly go get you a glass of tea or water, although you might not want to drink it when you got it, <laughs> but, but she can never sit down and, and rationally consider uh, her own sinfulness in Jesus Christ's uh, rescuing of her from that lost estate. So uh, those are the only exceptions. But other than that, the gospel is effective only in those, according to this verse, who believe it. Now believe what? That's a legitimate question. What do we believe? What's the content of our faith? Well, in its most basic sense, we'd say believe the good news. But then we could ask, what's the good news? It's the news that Jesus is the Christ, i.e. he's the Messiah, whom God promised to send, and that he's done everything that is necessary to save us. Now, Paul does express that in his letter to the Corinthians. And remember, he's writing Romans from Corinth. But he expresses that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1, probably through about 8, but we won't go that far. But Paul says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you. So he's talking about this is the gospel, this is the good news. Now what is it? Which also you received, and which also you stand, by which also you were saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures and that He was buried and, on the, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Then there's some more things about validating the, the fact that He was raised. That's the essence of the content of the gospel. It's about a person that He died and was resurrected. Sometimes people will ask, you know, they'll say, "Hey, listen, well, I got an uncle and he says he believes in Jesus." But but he he refuses to believe that he was resurrected as he says. I would I would be very careful with that. Uh, I would keep praying for him and I would keep giving him the gospel because I know there are different views on it. Uh, but most would hold no, because he's rejected an essential an essential component to that. It's like the same thing. What if what if you absolutely reject the fact that Jesus was divine or deity? Are you saved then? Well, you see, the problem with that is you're not believing in the Jesus of the Bible. The Mormon Jesus is not the Jesus of the Bible. The Jehovah Witnesses Jesus is not the Jesus of the Bible. So if we just make a creature and we call him Jesus, you know, we create him in our own image or we create him in whatever image we want, like this glass of water, this bottle of water, and I say, well, this is Jesus. In my opinion, this is Jesus. And I'm trusting that. You would say, well, you're, you're being silly, Bruce, because, well, that's not Jesus. That's a bottle of water. Well, I would say the same thing with the Mormon Jesus. I'd say, well, you're being silly about that, because that's not Jesus. I, it may be something, but it's not the Jesus of the Bible, so I couldn't give you any confidence about that either. The Jesus that we have to trust is the Jesus of the Bible, not just someone named Jesus or Jesus or Yeshua. It's that particular person. It was Jesus of Nazareth, the God-man. So, perfect man, undiminished deity in, in one person forever. That's who we trust. Not the fact. Not only that he died, but that he rose again, proving who he was. Now, I want you to notice here that Paul mentioned no other condition besides believing the good news. In this very crucial verse, he, comes, he picks this theme back up in chapter 4, verse 5. And he says, Nothing... About our having to do anything in addition to faith. Nothing. As such most one of the most popular ones, depending on the circles you run in. But say, for example, in the Church of Christ circles, it's very popular to say you need to believe and be baptized. Well, Paul doesn't say that here. So is Paul lying here? That's what you have to ask yourself. Because there are verses that talk about believing and baptizing in the same verse. So is Paul lying here? Because that's what you've got to say. Did he give an incomplete statement here? It's the power of salvation to everyone who believes. Well, if it's believing in something else, then Paul's not telling the truth. Okay, I hope you see that. You, you, because this is a prevalent view, you need to be prepared to at least discuss it, not to argue about it. You seldom argue anyone into the kingdom. But you can sure discuss it with them. So it's not faith plus baptism. It's it's not faith plus joining a church. It's not faith plus giving money. God's got all the money he needs. He doesn't need your money. You, you know what? You need to give it to him. But he doesn't need you to do it. He can come up with it another way. It's, it's not faith plus anything. In Romans chapter 4, Paul's going to say, if you add anything to faith, it doesn't count for faith anymore. Faith plus something is not the same entity as faith by itself. So for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, he says, because it, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel then has a special relevance to the Jew. But I want you to see that the the priority of Jewish evangelism is here historical. It's not essential. Now, what I mean by that is that it doesn't. If you've got two people in a room, one's Jewish and one's Gentile, you don't have to use this verse to say I'm going to speak to the Jewish person first. That's not what this means. Historically. The gospel has been offered to the Jew first. The Jews were the custodians of God's work. The Jews are God's chosen people. I wish the Americans were, but we're not. The Jews are God's chosen people. They've been temporarily set aside until Christ comes again, and that, that whole um, national function will return. But that's not what this is talking about. This is historical. This is descriptive, not prescriptive. It's describing how it was, not how it necessarily has to be in the future. The Great Commission doesn't make any distinction between Jews and Gentiles. Jesus Christ has charged Christians with taking the gospel to everyone. He's identified no group as that which we must give priority to in evangelism. But what Paul is reporting is exactly what happened. In the early church, the early church took the gospel to the Jews first, and then it spread out from Jerusalem to the Gentiles. Finally, you get Saul of Tarsus, who's converted, and he's the one that takes it to the remotest parts of the earth, fulfilling what was predicted in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. So, verses 16 and 17 are the key verses in Romans, because they state the theme of the revelation that will follow. Paul's message was the gospel. He felt no shame in declaring it, but was eager to proclaim it because it was a message that can deliver everyone who believes it, not just some people, no matter who you are. If you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, you're going to heaven. I can promise you that. I don't care how bad you've been. Some of you look like you've been pretty bad. I spotted a couple of you already. (laughs) But you know what? I can also promise you something else. I don't care how good you've been. I don't care what kind of family you came from or how much money you gave to the church or how long you've belonged. If you don't trust Jesus Christ, you're not going to heaven. This is a black and white issue. You either have trusted him and you're going, and everyone that trusts him will go. Or you reject him and you're not, and everyone that rejects him will not go. So the gospel delivers everyone who believes it. It's a message of how a righteous God makes people righteous while maintaining his own righteousness. And that will be the message that we'll see in these first few chapters. But it all starts right here. That's why we've spent last week and we'll do this week and, and next week on verse 17. Uh, Three weeks on two verses, but it's important that we get that. These are the hinge verses. These verses give us the theme of the Gospel of Romans, which is the righteousness of God being revealed to man. I believe there should be a purpose behind every exposition of the Word of God, and I don't think this one is hard to find. But my challenge to you is this. As Paul did, so we also have a responsibility... To testify on behalf of Jesus Christ to all people, regardless of their race or their social status. And this testimony is both by means of what we say and what we do. We must also face the very real challenge of being ashamed of the one who saved us. And I put it that way because we can't separate Jesus from the gospel or Jesus from the message. So I think it's more effective if we just say, I'm not ashamed of Jesus Christ. Or perhaps I am ashamed of Jesus Christ. Because if you're ashamed of the message, you're ashamed of him. We need to decide whether or not we really believe that Jesus is the only way to the Father. We've all made that decision at least once. I would hope so. And we're saved. You you can't lose that. But the question is, as ones who have taken advantage of that offer of salvation, will we live on a moment-by-moment basis as if we really believe it's true? We've appropriated it for ourselves. And now that we're eternally secure, we have that. Will we live in such a way as to deny that same salvation? To others. That's the challenge from Romans 1, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 16. Heavenly Father, we appreciate that challenge. We thank you for the mirror that has been placed in front of us so that we might look at it and really ask ourselves if we share Paul's attitude or perhaps we share Timothy's. Uh, Father, I thank you for both men and the, the way that you were able to use their strengths and weaknesses to teach us. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would never be ashamed of the one who saved us, the one who died on Calvary's tree for us. Father, I pray that you would give us the boldness to present the gospel, help us to do it in a manner that would glorify you. Uh, Most of all tonight, I would pray that we would do it from the right motivation, out of love and gratitude, not out of some sense of guilt or even a sense of repaying a debt. Father, these are uh, difficult times This, for many, is a difficult verse. I pray that you would convict us through your Holy Spirit. May you use it to your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.